Welcome to the Business of Beers podcast. This is the place where we help entrepreneurs expand their business, build their wealth, and generate passive income. I'm your host, Brian Beers, an entrepreneur who's on a mission to inspire growth from everyone around me. Remember that you need to take the action others won't, and you can live the life that others don't. Please be sure to check out my weekly newsletter that now drops every Thursday. It includes one quote, one tweet, one podcast recommendation, plus some business and investing insight from me. It's short and it's sweet. My goal is to provide you with just a couple gold nuggets to help inspire your growth. Go to brianbeers.com to subscribe. Hello, everyone. I'm excited today to bring you Jay Scott. Jay is an entrepreneur, a real estate investor, and the best-selling author of multiple real estate books that have sold over 300,000 copies. His latest book is Real Estate by the Numbers, a complete guide to deal analysis. Welcome to the show, Jay. Hey, thanks, Brian. Thrilled to be here. Awesome. I, um, you know, I think one of the coolest parts about having a podcast is having an excuse to talk to uh, someone like you for, you know, 35, 40 minutes. I've, uh, when you hosted the uh, business podcast for Bigger Pockets. That was one of my my favorite uh, weekly downloads. A L- lot of great guests, a lot of great conversations. So I um, appreciate you coming on and, and chatting with me for a little bit. But I think that's uh, kind of the power of podcasting, right? Just to be able to connect people. So absolutely, I'm looking forward to this. I mean, it was great talking to you before the show, and this is going to be a good good discussion. Yep, awesome. So to to kick it off, I know there's an old saying: uh, the best time to buy real estate was 20 years ago, and the second best time uh, was to buy today. Is I guess is is that still true? And with all the the rising interest rates and the dark cloud, kind of what's your current take on the real estate market and investing you know, today? So, um, is it the second best time to be buying? Here's the thing: we don't know. Nobody has any idea. I mean, it, if you would have asked me back in the uh, beginning of COVID, um, I would have said like the next five years are going to be the worst time to be buying real estate in history because it looked like we're heading towards a complete economic collapse and um, global supply chain issues. And um, everybody assumed, okay, I guess real estate's going away for a while. Um, two months later, and there we were on a trend that that led real estate upwards for the next two years and, and gains of 20, 30% in some areas. Um, and it was pretty much unprecedented. So, I mean, nobody can really predict where we're going to be in six months or a year or five years. So I don't like to tell people to try and time the market. I think timing the market yep. is, is very difficult to do. And here's the thing, unless you're buying um, to flip something, unless you're buying for the purpose of, of, of doing a transactional type deal where you buy low and sell mm-hmm. high, timing the market doesn't really matter. I mean, if you're buying for a, a 10-year hold or a 15-year hold or a 20-year hold, buy anytime. I mean, if you look at the data uh, over the last 150 years, there's never been a 10-year period where real estate hasn't gone up. Mm-hmm. And if you buy it right, you're cash flowing throughout that entire period. So I tell people, if I buy something today that cash flows, I don't care if it goes to zero tomorrow. I mean, as long as the as long as the value eventually comes back, and as long as I can collect income until that time comes, I'm happy. So I don't really care what the value of my property is on any given day, because um, I know that long term the value is going to go up, and I know that while I'm holding it, I'm going to be making money. Yep. Yeah, it's the funny thing between like real estate and stocks is a stock you can open up every single day, every single hour and see it fluctuate. But real estate, you know, it doesn't do that, right? Like, so it's even if it quote drops in value, it's technically in your head unless you go out and like actually do something about it. Yeah. And, and most stocks aren't throwing off cash every month. I mean, yeah. some are, are offering dividends, but most of them are, are you're just the only value you're getting is if they go up in price. And so real estate, there's, there's, 
other ways to make money besides just selling for a profit. Yep. So I know for you personally, I, I think your portfolio kind of has evolved over the years. Uh, so what, what does it look like today? So uh, yeah, so we flipped uh, several hundred houses over a decade between 2008 and 2018. Um, I, during that time, I, I kind of recognized the, the fallacy of my business model and, and the fact that I wasn't holding nearly enough real estate. So starting in 2017, I started. Uh, I stopped selling the ones I was holding as rentals. I kept buying rentals. I would hold them for a year um, and then sell them when the, yep. the prices went up. Um, but we've stopped selling our single family rentals and we've started buying uh, buying and syndicating large multifamily. So we have uh, about 1,100 units right now across five states. And uh, much of that is multifamily, but, but also about 50 or 60 single family houses as well. Plus 50 to 60. Okay. And then you're, um, that's bar, bar down investments. So bar down investments is, uh, my multifamily company with my partner, Ashley Wilson. Yep. Uh, and then I do all the, the single family separately with some other partners. Yep. Cool. What's that relationship look like? Like what, what's your responsibility? What's hers in, in that? Yeah, partnership? So, so we started working together 2018 ish. I asked her to mentor me and teach me the business. Um, so she basically said, okay, follow me for a year. And, uh, and learn the business. And in that year, what we realized was that we had a, a really strong set of complementary skills. The things I was really good at, she wasn't. The things she was really good at, I wasn't. And so it kind of made for a perfect partnership. We, we kind of rounded each other out really well. So she's responsible for acquisitions and what's called asset management, mm. uh, basically managing the business plan, managing the, the property manager, uh, basically operations of our properties. So she she deals with everything on the ground that deals with sticks and bricks. Okay. Uh, I'm responsible for um, for underwriting, um, uh, making sure that that we have good analysis on the markets, uh, that we're buying in the right places. Um, I'm responsible for capital raising and dealing with all the investors, capital stacks, so dealing with debt and equity. Um, and then on the back end, um, I'm the I'm the numbers guy, so I'm I'm the one that's kind of tracking everything to make sure that we're hitting our targets and and dealing with investors and making sure they know what's going on. Okay, that's awesome. How big is your team in in general? So it's you two. Uh, are, are you two the, the general partners, and then you got some other? The, the two of us are general partners, and the total team is I think eight or nine at this point. So okay. not not a huge team, but uh, we we've got a few folks supporting us. One of the coolest things about uh, that business is how scalable it is. I, I interviewed a guy the other day. He has $1.3 billion under management mm-hmm. and it's like 13 people. Yep. And it's and it's because he yeah, it's leverage and it's team and it's outsourced, but it like it's this core group and it's it's amazing the amount of leverage you can get um if you have a really yeah. solid the systems. Yeah, we've got a little over a hundred million under management, and our goal is to get to a billion in the next five years. And I don't see our team needing to grow too terribly much to get there. So yeah, like you said, it's it's highly scalable, and but it's also one of those things. One of the reasons I love multifamily is it does require a team. Yeah. So it doesn't require a huge team, but there are very discrete pieces of the business. I mean, you have to know how to find properties, you have to know how to underwrite properties, you need to be able to raise capital, you need to understand the debt markets, you need to be able to do asset management, you need to be able to put together a good business plan, um, and each of these things um, is is kind of an, a set of expertise. Um, that stands on its own, and there's no way anybody's going to be good enough to do all of those yep. things, or at least not good enough to to manage a, a ten or twenty or fifty million dollar asset. And so you're really forced to figure out what are you good at, and then bring in other people to surround yourself that that do the things you're not good at. Yep. 
So that leads to the next question. So you, you're the deal analysis guy. So it to- makes total sense you write the book on deal analysis. So I guess talk to me in terms of like, what's your process? You get you get a lead from Ashley or whoever of a potential acquisition and kind of like walk me through at a high level, low level, whatever you want of, of what are you kind of looking for? What are the big red flags? Um, how do you determine if it's a good deal or not? Yeah. So, well, every, every, obviously every asset class is going to be different. So what I'm talking about here is how we do it for, for multifamily yep. and not only every asset class, but you're going to have different business models. If I buy a skyscraper that's 96% occupied, um, and is, is, was built three years ago, mm-hmm. um, basically I'm just going to run it and, and collect cash. If I buy a property that just had a big fire and I need to renovate eight buildings out of 13 buildings, um, and I need to like find a place for the tenants to live and I mm. need to, to, to bring in new tenants. Well, then I'm going to model that completely differently. And then there's everything in between. So we typically buy stuff that, uh, is what's referred to as value add. So it's, it's multifamily apartment complexes that has some points of distress. It might be physical distress. It might be poor management. It might be a combination of the two. And so when we underwrite, um, the first thing that we do, and, and you'll find that this is very analogous to flipping houses, um, but on a much bigger scale, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to figure out what and and with houses, um, when you sell them, all that matters is what the resale value is going to be. Yep. For apartment complexes and other commercial deals, what matters is how much income they're making, the net income they're making, because that's what's going to determine the value at the end of the day. So the first thing and the most important thing we do when we need to look at a, a deal is we need to say rents today are X. If we do this renovation, and again, it can be physical renovation, it can be putting in better better managers, it can be lowering expenses, whatever it is, when we renovate the property and fix the property and mitigate all the issues, what can the rent get up to? So for example, maybe rents today are $1,200 a month on average. Maybe we can get them to $1,400 a month on average. Mm-hmm. That $200 per month in additional income after you subtract out maybe some additional expenses, is going to translate to a higher value for that property. So the first thing we need to do is figure out what's the what's the income bump that we can get. The next thing we need to figure out is what's the amount we need to spend to get that income bump. Is it going to cost us a million dollars to get that extra $200 a month in rent? Or is it going to cost us $8 million to get that extra $200 a month in rent? And then the final piece is figuring out our capital stacks. So figuring out um, where we're going to get our debt from. Are we going to go with a, a bank and get a bridge loan, which is kind of a, a short-term loan? Are we going to go to Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac and get a, a 10-year long-term fixed rate loan? Um, and then that might cover 60 70% of the total cost of the project. We still have the other 30 35 40%, which we're going to have to raise equity. We're going to have to bring in investors or we're going to have to put in our own cash. And that's going to cost money as well. And so figuring out what's the debt going to cost us, what's the equity, what are the passive investors going to cost us, um, and then putting all three of those things together, the rent bumps, the cost of getting those rent bumps, and then the cost of our capital, we kind of put that into an underwriting model and it spits out how profitable the deal is. Okay. What do you see as, uh, in terms of when you do these renovations, what are the ones that you like get the most bang for your buck? Is it the, the kitchens? Is it the, the flooring, painting? Like... Sure. bathrooms yeah it, it really depends um there, there's no there's no one one size fits all when it comes to what you renovate yep. I, I will say that uh the thing that a lot of of people in this business underestimate is how far better management can go mm. um so a lot of times we'll come in and what we'll realize is that management's doing a poor job of doing maintenance they're doing a poor job of 
uh, bringing in or attracting new tenants. Maybe they're doing a poor job of vetting those tenants and, and their, mm. their screening process is, is poor. And so you get tenants in there who end up not paying. You have to evict them. You have to do write-offs for, for the loss in rent. Um, and so management actually goes a long way. And so having a great property management team is kind of number one priority for us. Then on the renovation side, uh, again, it depends. So typically we're buying and everybody has a different model, but ours is we buy properties that are kind of class B minus or C plus, um, which means these are, these are, um, properties in working class areas that might be 20 or 30 years old, um, that could use a, a nice facelift. And our goal is to kind of get them from a, a C minus or a C plus or a B minus class up to like a B plus or an A minus class. And to do that, we're going to do a combination of three things. Uh, we're going to do some major uh, renovations on the exterior. So we want to be able to to attract tenants as they're driving by. The best the best way to uh, to market uh, uh, an apartment complex is to look pretty on the outside. Yep. Uh, people drive by because they live in that area. They're looking for a new place to live in that area, and they say, "Oh, that looks like a nice place to live." Um, so number one is what we may do a lot of exterior renovations. Number two, we're going to do obviously interior renovations and. Um, depending on the age of the building, for us, most of the stuff we buy is is 1980 and newer. Um, so we don't necessarily have to deal with lead paint. We don't have to deal mm-hmm. with uh, old uh, plumbing pipes that need to be completely repa- replaced. Um, but we might have to deal with foundation issues. We might have to deal with electrical upgrades. Um, and then we'll certainly do cosmetic upgrades, things like new flooring and counters and uh, countertops and and cabinets and maybe we'll do some layout changes. So maybe we find uh, we, we have a property now that we kind of accidentally figured out that it was a, um, a two bedroom and a den property. Um, we figured out that if we turn that den into a bedroom. Um, we can get a, a nice mm-hmm. little bump in rent yeah. on that unit. And so we're, we're always thinking about what can we do to, to manipulate the layout of the, of the, of the rooms or of the units. And then third is the amenities. And this is the kind of the thing that a lot of people don't think about, but people move into properties because they have a gym or because they have um, a pool or because they have a basketball court or, and you can really, you can use those amenities to attract the type of tenant that you want. So for example, um, if, if you live in an area and you look at the demographics and you realize 80% of the people that live in that area are families, well, put in some amenities that are going to yeah. appeal to to appeal to kids, yeah. um, because you really you want to have the the broadest appeal to, to to buyers or renters as possible. And so it basically boils down to exterior, interior, and amenities. Yep, great. What's your take on people? You know, going directly investing directly into real estate to themselves, or they, you know, go kind of this LP route, and maybe if they're a credit yeah. investor, because there's just two completely different you know ways to go. And what's kind of your take on how you advise people on that? So, I, I mean, I look at it as um, there's really no comparison. Um, you either are looking for a job. Um, what's, your, what's your highest and best use of time? So um, if I said to you, you've got 40 hours a week to work or 30 hours or 50 hours a week to work, where are you going to make the most money? Is it going to be because you have a degree in engineering and you can go work for some tech company and, and, and make $300 an hour with stock options? Well, then you should do that. Or maybe, yep. uh, maybe you have the ability to be a consultant at $200 an hour and you should do that. Or maybe you're an entrepreneur and you want to start, uh, some, some business. Go do that. 
Or maybe you're really good at real estate and you love real estate. So you go and become an operator for multifamily deals like this. So um, so the question isn't, do you invest passively or actively? It's the question, where's the best use of your time for your active uh, efforts? And maybe that's maybe that's real estate. Maybe that's working a W-2 job. Maybe that's a consultant. Maybe that's a business owner. And compare being a real estate investor to all those other active options. Then on the other side, you have to think, okay, once I start making money from whatever I'm doing with my 40 or 50 hours a week, where am I going to invest that money? Yep. And so maybe that's going to be in LP, uh, as an LP in syndications or other real estate deals. Maybe that's going to be the stock market. Maybe that's going to be angel investing. Uh, maybe that's going to be bonds, whatever you want. Um, and so you need to figure out what you're going to be doing on the active side. Maybe it's real estate, maybe not. And then what are you going to be doing on the passive side? And again, maybe real estate or maybe not. Not do I want to be a passive investor, or an active investor. That's kind of the, the wrong way to be thinking about it from my perspective. Yeah. Yeah. And then we, we kind of went down the first path of, you know, we're going to, you know, I have the business we run, but we're going to buy real estate, single family homes, or do some flips and rentals. And then found like all these rental properties and most of them were like C, C class, but just there's so much headaches and like there's no money. And then like I was dealing with, you know, property managers, but all this, this, this BS. And it was like, what the hell am I doing? Like I, I should be out, you know, I can make 10 times the amount of money like running my business and buying more locations, not dealing with all this bullshit. So then we, you know, we've kind of pivoted now to, you know, primarily doing multifamily, you know, self-storage, you know, so a yes. couple different investments. So it's been... Yeah, uh, highest and best use of your yeah. time. Yeah, and then it's like, then I can, yeah, like you said, make more active money and then decide, hey, where am I going to put that? Do I put it back into the business to continue to snowball it? Or do we then go and, you know, find partners who and let them let them run on it? Um, so that's, uh, I think that's, that's key though, is, is really determining, like you said, that, that how much time do you want to put? How much risk do you want to have? Yep. Um, and, and and then how, how quickly you're getting your money back? Like all these, there's all these factors to kind of look at. But how do you determine? I mean, are, so are you an LP with other with other groups? I am. Um, so uh, I actually got into multifamily because I was looking for a place to invest my own capital. Um, okay. So and I'm a control freak. I don't like handing over my my money to other people. So uh, I use my multifamily investments kind of as a vehicle for my own passive investments. So so Ashley and I. Uh, and our third partner, we we invest a lot of money, a lot of our own cash in our own deals. Um, that said, I also like to diversify. Um, I like to be in other asset classes outside of multifamily. I like to be in other areas outside of the states that we invest in. I like to be in other niches outside of value add. Um, so I do invest in other people's uh, syndications and deals to give me that diversification. Okay. And what, what process do you go through to underwrite the operator? Because that's the key, right? It's yeah. it's the jockey is like the most important thing. Um, what do you look at? Literally the most important thing. And uh, a lot of times when I invest in real estate, I in, I'm an angel investor. I invest in businesses. Um, I invest in a lot of different asset classes. And nine times out of 10 for me, it's the operator, not the investment. Yep. Because the way I look at it, I'm never going to be smart enough um, whether it's me smart enough or having enough data to underwrite a deal in somebody else's business. Um, like if somebody came to me and, and wanted to invest in one of my deals and said, Hey, will you walk me through the underwriting? I can walk them through the underwriting. I'll walk, I'll spend three hours walking them through every de- detail of the underwriting. Yep. I can promise you they're never going to understand that deal as well as I do because I'm in the market. I've talked to the seller or the broker. I've seen the property. I know the numbers like the back of my hand. And so if there's nothing they're ever going to be able to do 
to verify all the numbers that I'm telling them, at the end of the day, they're going to have to trust me. And likewise, I, I could be great at this real estate thing, um, but if I'm investing in somebody else's deal, I'm never going to know as much as they do. And at the end of the day, I'm going to have to trust them. So operators, the most important thing. Some of the things I look for, um, I want to see somebody who has been doing this for a while. Um, real estate's like anything else. Um, you, you learn by making mistakes. You learn through experience. Um, yeah. And a lot of people have made a lot of money in real estate the last few years. Um, but I, I like to say a monkey could have made real uh, made a lot yeah. of money in real estate the last few years. Yep. And, and so um, I, I certainly, when when I was starting out five, six years ago in multifamily, I mean, I, I felt the same way. Like, why should people trust me? Part of the reason that I sought out Ashley as, as a partner, um, because she did have experience and, and she had that that knowledge and and, and um, I could basically credibly say, hey, we've been in this business for several years, even though I'd only been in the business for, for a short time. So number one, I'm, I'm looking for experience. Number two, um, while it's not an absolute requirement, I really like to see operators that put their own money in deals. Yep. Um, I especially want to see it if they have money. So yeah. an operator that's that's just starting out, um, maybe I'll take a chance on uh, if they don't put money in. But if I see a big operator who I know has a bunch of cash, who's made a lot of cash, and they're not putting in five, how much 10, do you want to see? Ten percent is great. I want to see ten percent of the total raise amount um, of, it, of the equity. Yeah, of the equity of the they're equity. raising. Yeah, yeah. yeah okay. So if they're, if they're raising ten million, they should be putting in a million. And let me tell you something. Uh, the GP, the G, the group of GP guys should be putting. The girls group of GP should put be putting in ten percent. Yeah, okay. That that's yeah. kind of that's that's kind of the benchmark. Now, if it's a, a fifty million dollar raise, yeah, five million dollars is a big chunk. Maybe maybe it's five yep. percent. Um, but I want to see that they are willing skin to put in the game. money in. Because yep. here's the thing: there's two ways to make money in in a deal. You make money as the operator, the GP. You make money as as the investor, the LP, and um, there are plenty of times when the GP can make more money than the LP because there are a lot of fees involved. Yep. So I want to see that the GP has aligned interest with with the with me as an LP um, by having money on that side as well. And, and if they have ten percent of the of the um, of the LP themselves, uh, they may be making almost as much money from the LP as they do from the GP. And so that really helps mm. to align incentives. Yep. What are you guys putting into deals? Typically, we do ten percent. Yep. Okay, and that's kind of, that's kind of our benchmark. Sometimes we'll put in more if uh, if if it's a, a smaller deal and we have cash. Um, yep. Sometimes we'll put in a little bit less if it's a really big deal, but ten percent is kind of our benchmark. Yep. What about what about asset class? Like, are you is it all multifamily for you? Or are you looking? I mean, as an LP two in terms of self storage or like new developments instead of value adds, any anything like that? Um, so as an LP, I, I kind of stay away from other people's, uh, multifamily just cause I feel like, uh, I can, I, can I, have, I have plenty of places to put money for multifamily. So yeah. again, I use other people as kind of my diversification, uh, uh, mechanism. And so I invest with, uh, with, uh, somebody in the note space. Um, cause I feel like yep. there's, there's okay, good so diversification. Yep. yep. Good, good diversification in paper. Um, I invest in some self storage, some RV parks, um, and then uh, that that's pretty much it. I mean, I like, again, asset classes. The, the nice thing about uh, self-storage and notes are that they're uh, they're they're um, they're not well correlated to multifamily. 
Mm, um, yep. So if, if multifamily is getting crushed, there's a reasonable chance that self-storage is doing well. Why is multifamily getting crushed? Because everybody's moving out and moving back home or moving in with roommates. Well, now they have a lot of stuff they need to put stuff somewhere. Yep. Um, so so self-storage tends to be a, a good counter-cyclical uh, asset class to multifamily. So that's what I mean by diversification. And, and um, so that those are those are a few of the asset classes I look at. Okay. So what do you see happening in the multifamily space with the pending recession or whatever happens? People yeah. lose their jobs. Is it, I mean, are, are you operating in the kind of the, the middle ground? So the people just kind of drop from below to you and then yours out. Like, what do you kind of, what's the strategy there? Yeah, we, we, we have a strong focus B class properties. So it's kind of, it's, it's people are moving down when, when they're getting their wages cut or hours yep. cut or losing their jobs. Um, but we're not at the lowest class. Um, where people are probably struggling the most, the C class, the D class. Yep, um, yep. We're, we're kind of that that strong working class uh, buildings that we think are most recession resistant. But I'll, I'll be honest, multifamily I think has has a, a few good years of run run up left. Uh, certainly, interest rates are hurting us right now. Cap rates are going up a little bit. Interest rates are going up, so it's harder to find deals that work. But the nice thing is, when we see inflation. And that's what's kind of driving all of the the bad yep. stuff that's going on in the economy. The Fed raising interest rates. Um, the the big impact inflation has in the multifamily market is it drives rents up, also drives expenses up, also drives cap rates up and interest rates up. It does all those things. Yep, so it all moves kind of together. Yep. But here's the thing: imagine three years from now when inflation's under control, we're past the recession. What's going to happen? Interest rates are going to come down. Yep. And expenses are going to come down. And cap rates are going to come down. Rents not. <laughs> rents rents are the one thing that are, that aren't going to come down. So inflation actually helps multifamily over two or three or five years, even if it might hurt multifamily like a year or two out. Yeah. And typically, when we buy, our time horizons three, five, seven years. So, um, so I really like multifamily buying now for for a three or five year exit. Yeah. Do you see it ever becoming a problem to to raise rents? Like it seems like everyone's plan is just you raise, you raise, you raise, you raise. At a certain point. Absolutely. It becomes like how much higher can it go without like totally breaking the system? I don't like as housing, like I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah, a hundred percent. And I think we're we're getting there. Um, we've seen in our main market, Houston, uh, over the last two months, it's like two months of non-rent growth, um, which is crazy given that we've seen like three, four, yeah. five, seven percent rent growth over the last couple of years. Um, we've had two months of non-rent growth. Doesn't surprise me. Um, but I think there, there's going to come a time when we need to allow wages, median income to, to catch up. Um, because as, as landlords, we tend to have these criteria, three times earnings, uh, three yeah, times yeah. income. Yeah, um, yeah. and at some point, if income's not keeping up, we're not going to be able to just keep raising rents because nobody's going to qualify. Yeah. And so I think we're definitely getting to the point where rent growth is going to start to slow down. Um, I, I think the, the 0% rent growth or negative rent growth is unlikely. I mean, if you look at, um, the last hundred years of rent growth in this country, it really, it's only gone in one direction. In 2008, we, we saw it kind of level off. Um, we have seen a huge run up the last two years. So I can see it leveling off again. Um, maybe even going down in a few markets, but I, I like that trend longer term. So even if it's bad the next six or twelve months, I, I think again, multifamily. Yeah, it's a long term. The long term outlook is yeah. you know, what's key here. Um, yeah. Do you, Do you have any other businesses you operate in addition to the real estate? Um. So, 
it's, a, it's, I, I, uh, I still keep my, my hands in the tech world. Um, I'm, I, I'm on the advisory boards of several tech companies, mostly prop tech, which is property technology. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm not on the boards of companies like Airbnb and, 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 uh, VRBO and Zillow, but those are the types of companies we're talking about. Um, technology companies focused on, on real estate. So I do a lot of advisory work there. Um, I, I do a good bit of angel investing. So I'm involved in, in an angel investing fund in tech businesses. Um, so I keep my hands kind of playing in those, but my main focus and, uh, it has to be because we have a lot of investors who have a lot of money with us. Yeah. Um, and I'm not going to be comfortable basically taking money from investors unless I can say I'm full time, bar down investments, multifamily. Um, you have my full attention. Yep. So, yeah. so, uh, yeah, I do dabble in other things, but my full time job, it. 50 hours a week is, is bar That's down awesome. in multifamily. Yeah. I remember, I mean, this was years ago, uh, but you had that like a property restoration business. It sounds like you were starting and potentially franchising or like talking about growing it. Um, so I ended up when when I went into multifamily full time, um, I decided to sell off my share in that. Um, I gave up a couple advisory seats. Uh, I gave up, unfortunately, mm-hmm. the business podcast. Um, yeah, I, I got a lot of stuff off my plate because I knew that was that was the only thing that was going to be fair to my investors yep. um, if I was focused full time. And so yeah, that was that was one of the things that I had to yeah, unfortunately. That, that leads to like a, a great topic, which is like. Diversification versus like yeah. dilution, and I think a lot of times yeah. people overvalue di- diversification when it comes to their time, and they think they can do all these different things, and then it really just truly dil- dilutes their focus, and 100%. they get a bunch of half baked cakes instead of like one really good cake. Um, so, I don't know, any, I mean, it sounds like that's what you. I mean, you're all in on this thing, I think, which is awesome. I think I for mean, a lot I'm, of people, there's yeah. there too too many things going on. Yeah, I, I've I've realized over the last five or six years how important focus is, and I like to equate a business. It's like a, a an airplane rolling down a runway, um, and oh, yeah. it takes takes a while to pick up steam and pick up steam and pick up steam, and finally you like you get up to three hundred miles an hour and you take off, and it's it's kind of like that the hockey stick graph. Yeah. Um, and most people, what they're doing when when uh, when they're when they're trying to do too many things, it's like they're trying to to roll too many airplanes down the runway. Yeah, and none of them get off the ground. Not, yeah, none of them are picking up yep. enough speed. Yep, that's what I um, um I, I talked to a lot of people about uh, starting their own franchise or buying buying a franchise, becoming a franchisee, and that's like they want to do it as like a side business. And I'm just uh, you know for a lot of people. I mean, I've, I've personally failed at this. We've tried to open other businesses and I only, you know, I thought it would just be, oh, I'll just open this thing and it'll just like run itself. I have a manager, et cetera. But, but then like the plane never gets off the ground. The thing never makes money. But then I reflect and say, well, I never like, I never gave it my attention because I was too busy focused on my, my, you know, my primary business. And so I think too many people making $20,000 in in five different businesses uh, and and thinking, okay, I'm making a hundred K a year. I'm doing great. They don't realize if they pick one of those businesses, they can make a million. Yeah. And I think once you go deeper, even for us in like the, the Midas the automotive repair business is like, there's no like new challenges that come up or not, or I mean, there's challenges, but like we, if we see a challenge and there's a problem, we can fix it. But then that, that fix then applies to 30. And like, yeah. if we had 60 locations, it's not much different than what we're doing today. We just might have to get on a plane to get there, but like, yeah. it's the same businesses over and over and over again, uh, which is way more like scalable than like you said, five, 10, 20 different things that like, and then all these new problems, all these new macro things coming up, all these employees and payroll and like, rather than just narrowing down, but it's hard. You know, Shiny objects, yeah, you know? Yeah. But I mean, the nice thing is you come up with one nice little um, uh, tweak 
that yeah. that that bumps income or reduces expenses, and now you can you can uh, you can roll that out over thirty different businesses. Yeah. I, I had someone pitch me on this. It's this franchise concept. Let me get your take on it. The the customer would be uh, someone like you who owns multi multi unit. And it's a valet trash service. So customers instead of having to take their trash to the dumpster, they get a little container outside their door. They put it in, and they have somebody comes around, takes the trash out of the little container, and then puts it in the dumpster. They charge the 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 apartment owner a fee, ten dollars a month or whatever it is, and then they mark it up and charge the the tenant twenty five dollars a month for the service. Is there value to that? So as as a tenant, yes. Um, as an apartment owner, I'm not sure I want a trash can outside of, of, of every door. I think it uh, implementation would be really important if they could do that in a way um, that it was not aesthetically detracting from the mm, from yep. the from the place. And and here, the problem is um, that's going to be a lot more attractive in higher end complexes yep. where people are willing to pay for the concierge service. Um, but those are the same complexes where the owners are going to say, I don't want trash sitting outside of everybody's door. <laughs> yeah, so you, you've uh, kind of got that conundrum. Um, yeah. I, it's, it, it was I've never heard of it. They pitched me on it. They said, I don't, I don't know. They, I guess they're, they're shining these, they're shining apartment buildings up. I, they have all these rules around that when they pick up the trash and put it out. So it's like, it's like the same day kind of thing. But, uh, interesting. I, I, I would honestly be more interested. I would be interested in hearing more about that. Yeah. I don't know. It's uh, new to me, but, uh, anyways, it was cool. And it was like, oh, it's this, it's this, and you know, add, adds to the income of the building, yeah. this yeah. new revenue stream. Yeah. I don't know. So anyhow. So what's one of the biggest, I mean, you've had a pretty successful career. What's one of the biggest failures do you think you've had cool. along the way? Lots of the biggest, let, let's say. Or biggest. Um, it doesn't mean the biggest top five, though. I mean. uh, so I'll, I'll say like the one that probably hurt the most is um, back in 2013, uh, a friend of mine and I started a tech business, just a, a small tech business. Basically, we created a product that would teach kids about uh, programming and electronics. Okay. Um, so basically, the the engineering side of of building hardware and, and programming it. And we spent several hundred thousand dollars, and and we created an amazing product. Um, but unfortunately, we we couldn't get the price down. Um, we didn't know our market well enough to know that we were overpriced. Um, and ultimately, like we couldn't sell any of this amazing product. Like everybody that saw it was like, this is an amazing product. No, we're not willing to pay that price. Um, and that was, that was devastating. Um, because I had always, like, I had never undertaken a big initiative, a, a, mm. like a big entrepreneurial initiative, um, where at the end I can look back and say, I made some catastrophic mistake that could have been avoided, but I did. And we lost a few hundred thousand dollars. And uh, even more importantly, we lost about two years of time um, because we made a mistake that we easily could have verified like at the Which beginning. Is the market analysis. The market, the, the product market fit and, and, and the and the price point. Yep. Um, so you would have figured out, I can't make this thing for a price point that big, you know, that works. So I shouldn't even invest the time into doing this. Yeah, thing. it was like, even worse than that. Like we knew how much we could build it for. Um, we didn't investigate how much we could sell it for, which was the easy part. How, how like, much did you have to sell for? Like, uh, I think it was like $120. Um, and uh, people were willing to pay 60 70 80 Okay, They weren't willing to go into that that over $100 price point and, and we just couldn't get the cost down. And So what did you learn from that? Like, what, what do you do now? Do you think that's ingrained from that those lessons? 
So I, I think the biggest thing is I'm a big fan of doing due diligence. Um, a lot of people, and especially this has been a problem in, in real estate the last couple of years, because again, the market's just been going up and up and up. Um, I think a lot of people are starting to get lax on their due diligence and um, whether they consciously realize it or not, they they expect the market to save them mm. um, if, they, if they make any mistakes. And uh, it was just a really good reminder to me that there are certain things that the market can't save you from. Um, and even if it could, there are a lot of times the market's not going to save you. And so you, you really need to to do your due diligence. And I think for us, it wasn't so much that uh, we didn't want to do our due diligence. I think uh, my partner and I kind of both knew that this was a big risk and neither of us wanted to to hear that it wasn't going to work. So we okay. didn't investigate further. And so mm-hmm. I'd say one of the bigger things for me is don't be scared to to do your due diligence in the expectation that you're going to find a showstopper. That's actually a better thing than, than moving forward and losing money. Yeah. Yeah. Not letting your passion probably cloud the judgment where you're super passionate about this thing and you like love the concept more than the, the, the business, which, you know, objectively you would have been like, this is a terrible business, but a, a great uh, product isn't always going to make money. Yeah. You mentioned Ashley being a, a mentor to you. Do you have any other mentors along your path who've, who've really had an impact on you? Yeah, uh, a number. And it's funny, um, very few, Ashley is probably the one in the, in the real estate space, but I still have people that I worked with back in the tech world um, who, even though I'm not in tech anymore, I'm very much like I can pick up the phone and, and, and call them and um, basically say, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm having a problem in my business. And they don't know real estate at all. Um, but they know business yep. and they, they can help me think through. They can ask me, basically, it, it's not even giving me um, input. It's just asking me questions to help me come to the solution. And that's what great mentors do. They don't, they don't give you the answers. Um, they just, they talk you through it and, and help you clarify it in your own head. Because typically speaking, uh, the best mentors don't know your business as well as you do. Hopefully nobody knows your business as well as you do. Um, and I'm sure you have mentors that know nothing yeah. about um, automotive repair, um, but they can still help you immensely because they're great business people who can help you think through the specific issues you're having. And, and so uh, for me, Ashley was very much a specific mentor in the real estate space, but most of my mentors are, are just really good business people um, and from my previous life. Yep. Yeah, a lot of it's just is asking you questions. I think sometimes we we think we only have like one option and yep. by asking the questions that we realize, hey, we have three options, four options, like, and then we get clarity and can make a decision. We, we miss the obvious because we're too too deep into it. Yep. How do you recommend someone go it out and finding a mentor? Um, add value. So I didn't just go to Ashley and say, hey, will you mentor me? I actually went to her and I said, I have a proposal for you. Let me spend a year um, giving you as much time as you want, all of my knowledge, my network, my money, um, anything you need. Um, and what I asked for in return is that you spend that year mentoring me. And so it was. It, it was hopefully it was as good a deal for her as it was for me. She, she, I wasn't just taking. Yep. I was giving at least as much. And so what I recommend is figure out what you have to offer and then go to somebody and say, hey, let's let's make a trade. And you don't have to say it in those words, but that's basically it. So yep. so maybe you're great at building websites. Okay, well, let me go and, and revamp three of your websites and create a new website for you. And in return, you teach me this, or maybe you're great at, at marketing. Um, let me let me go like use my marketing skills to, to bring you 30 investors or 50 customers or whatever it is um, in return, you teach me the business. And, and, and so don't, don't make it a, a one-way street. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's great advice. I think uh, it's all about the value and just trying to find out what your good skill set is and it changes yep. over time. And, you know, I think um, just continuing to, to educate and network. And I mean, it's a small world out there. It's pretty funny. You know, people think it's big and stuff, but it's yep. at least the people who are the true players, it's pretty small. And you get, I think it comes down to the reputation and like our accountability. Do you do what you say you're going to do? And that's absolutely. I talk to guys all the time and they're, they're looking for people to add to the team, but they like, it's just, they have a hard time finding the, the mentee or whatever you want to call it. Cause like they want people they, they like that are trustworthy, that are, you know, show up every day, that hard work and they have good intentions. And like, like, so there's people out there who, who want the help and people who want to give it. So it's just putting yourself out there. So. Yeah. And, and we have to realize that uh, a lot of, a lot of us aren't, we're not going to find a lot of matches in that mentee mentor space or even in the employee employer space. Yep. Um, like a lot of people just aren't going to go well together. And we have to, to recognize that the first person we see and think, okay, that person would be a, a good employee or that person would be a good mentor. Um, well, there's a good chance that they won't be. And so don't be scared to go talk to 10 people or 50 people. Um, because a lot of times, even though somebody can be really smart and really dedicated on both sides, uh, doesn't mean they're going to kind of mesh well together or work well together. Yeah, that's great advice. Cool. So I appreciate you coming and sharing your, your time today. Uh, where can people, I guess, first buy the book? I, I assume Amazon by the time this comes out uh, at biggerpockets.com. Yep. Uh, you can go to Bigger Pockets Bookstore or Amazon.com or Barnes and Noble. I think it's in, in all the bookstores as of November 15th. Um, and so, yeah, it's, uh, it's my fifth book and uh, the one that I think I spent most time and, and tears and blood and sweat and um, putting together, but I'm really proud of it. And uh, I wrote it with my co-author, Dave Meyer, who is a VP of analytics at, at Bigger Pockets. So another tremendously smart numbers guy. Awesome. And if people are interested in connecting with you, uh, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, uh, www.connectwithjscott.com and that'll link you out to everything. Awesome. Cool. I appreciate uh, you coming on again and, and have a great day. Awesome. Thanks, Brian. That's all we got for this episode with the Business with Beers podcast. One thing that would really help both us and other new potential listeners is to rate the show and leave a comment in iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you listen. Also make sure to link up with me on your preferred social media platforms, LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. You can find all my links at brianbeers.com. Please just share the podcast with anyone who you think might enjoy it. And until next time, remember to take the actions others won't to live the life that others don't. 